In John chapter 7, the Pharisees are trying to understand why Jesus said that he's going to a place where they can't find him. So then they wonder if he's going to the dispersion among the Greeks. What? Well, let's unpack this. See, the dispersion refers to the Jews being removed from their ancestral land. If you remember, the kingdom of Israel once existed, but it was divided into the northern Israel and the southern Judah. The Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in 722 BC, and although some did go to Assyria, many left their land and settled in neighboring towns and nations. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom and took many into exile in Babylon. Now, while some did return to Jerusalem, many stayed back, and as a result, you now have many Jewish people living all over the world, not just in their ancestral land. Now, whenever Jesus came, Jews were spread out and living among the Greeks. So the Pharisees were now wondering if Jesus was talking about going to the Jews in Greek territory, or even worse, the Greeks themselves. No, that's not what Jesus was talking about, but this actually does describe Paul's ministry. But that's another note. Now, it is interesting to note that the Jewish dispersion has many implications today. Did you know there are approximately 17 million Jews today with the highest density not in the nation of Israel, but in New York, in pockets in France, Canada, and the UK. So there you go. A little bit about the dispersion, and that's enough today for our historical minute. Let us pray. God, we thank you so much for Jesus tonight. We, we look forward to celebrating Christmas yet again in a couple days, celebrating his coming to this earth to, I guess, remind us in so many ways that we matter to you. It's because of your love that you sent Jesus to save us. It's because of your love that you continue to walk with us in this life. It's because of your love that you allowed your son to die on the cross and rise again. But continue to remind us in this season that you care about every aspect of our lives, that you created us to love us, and then as such, Lord, everything that we're going through is something that is of the utmost concern to you. Remind us that you've got us as we're walking through this somewhat difficult life at times. Remind us that you love us in times when we feel alone. Remind us that there is strength in you to be found. Remind us that we're forgiven because of Jesus. Remind us that you got us, that you love us, that we're yours. And that's our prayer tonight. We pray that in the name of Jesus and all God's people said... Amen. So we find ourselves in chapter John, book of John, chapter 6, beginning with verse 35 today. Uh, Mike was a little ambitious with the historical minute. I don't know if we're going to get that far tonight, but we're going to, well, we're, we probably won't get that far tonight, but we're going to go forward anyway. Uh, just to catch you up a little bit, we are in the bread of life narrative that Jesus gives. Um, and just kind of the major point of last week was simply this. I love the, the light imagery that James gave just at the beginning during the confession and absolution. And it's, it's almost like Jesus is trying to shed light on who he is all the way through the first six chapters of John. In many ways, our understanding of God, I always say, is like in this little box, right? And it was true for the disciples as well. And in time after time, he's, he's either shedding light or he's trying to knock off the sides of that box to expand for us who he is. And so what do you know so far about Jesus, right? You, you know that he can heal people. I mean, heal incurable diseases and make them as if they never had the disease in the first place. Restore limbs, all sorts of extraordinary things. They were just on a boat last week, we saw, right? And Jesus comes walking on the water, not a normal thing for somebody, right? During a storm. We know that he just multiplied food and fed close to 15,000 people. Jesus keeps trying to knock off the sides of this wall of what we try to contain our understanding of him in. And so he continues to try to do that in the narrative. And the whole thing last week was this. 
as he begins the spread of life narrative, is you're just not getting who I am. Yes, some of you are seeing, seeing me as a healer, and that's cool because I can heal. I can do all sorts of really cool things. Some of you are seeing me as, as a great order or somebody that can teach and, and preach as if God himself was preaching to you, and you get all excited about that. But I tell you, I, I'm more than those things. I'm more than the one that can feed 15,000 people with a few loaves. You're just missing it. I, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah that was prophesied. I am the one that came from heaven down to this earth to save you from your sins so that you can be with me forever in paradise. And you're missing that component. You're missing that big, huge piece. And we talked about last week how sometimes we see God in the same way, don't we? Especially in this culture of ours where we've kind of minimized sin so much that, so that to be honest, for so many people, they just don't know what they're forgiven for or why they need a Savior, right? Because it seems like we've made everything permissible. But the reality is that the biggest thing about Jesus is that he came to this earth to forgive us for our sins, which reconciles our relationship with God so that we get to go to heaven. That's it. But sometimes when we need healing, we just focus on him as the healer. And even sometimes when we do these anointings and people come in and it's so cool because they're so vulnerable to, to what God might do, right? And they're putting all their faith in what God's going to do through this prayer of faith. We also do as part of that a confession of sins. And sometimes it takes people aback, like, what does this have to do with anything? Well, Jesus says, I want to heal your insides as I begin to heal your outsides, Right? It's always, for Jesus, always about the forgiveness. It's always about reconciling that relationship with God. It's always about getting you to heaven. For these people, it was about the fact that, right, prophesied, for, or not prophesied, but, but taught by the Pharisees for so long was that the, when the Messiah comes again, he'll be able to restore the manna, right, and feed people, all sorts of people all over Israel. I mean, you'll never have to worry about being hungry again. It was awesome. Jesus just fed 15,000 people. Hearkening that messianic prophecy, if you will, it was more of a teaching, but the reality is that's what they thought. And so they were thinking, this is the guy, this could be the guy, I mean, just fed everybody, so let's make him king, and they were all about making him king. He can heal people, he can feed people, what can't this guy do? Let's put him up against Rome and see if he is the Messiah he seems to be claiming to be. So Jesus gets into this narrative to send some more crucial truths than all those things. He says, I need you to see me as the one that is sent from heaven, which ticked off all the Pharisees. I need you to see me as one that came to rescue you so that you can be with me for eternity. I need you to see me as the Messiah that was prophesied. Do you get it? I need you to focus on the big things. And that's where he is. He's in the middle of that. In verse 35, we pick up, and he says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Harkens back to the woman at the well, right? I am the living water. Here he's saying, I am the bread that sustains forever. He's really talking about putting faith in him, using as a metaphor, right? Put your faith, put your trust in me, and be saved. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. So Jesus said over and over, the reason I do these miracles, the reason that I heal so many people, the reason that I multiplied this food was to give evidence to what I'm saying is true, right? Anybody can go up and say whatever they want. I keep saying you need to know this because a pastor's just a talking head. Hopefully he's rooted in the word. But you don't know that when he gets up here and talking unless you know the word of God. Then you can test everything that the pastor says so that you know what he's saying is true. 
But the reality is Jesus could go and say everything that is true, but without some of these extra things to validate who he was, at least at this time, it was going to be a hard deal for anybody to put their faith in him. So he would heal, and he would walk across water, and he would still storms, and he would feed thousands of people, and then he would die, and he would rise again, all to validate that he was who he said he was. It wasn't enough that John the Baptist said that he was the Messiah. It wasn't enough that Jesus, or God himself, spoke from heaven, saying, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It wasn't enough because the people, just like us today, are so slow to believe. We're so slow to trust. And we get caught up in somebody meeting our needs and we forget about the main things. So we're in the middle of that narrative and he goes on in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and who continuously believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So there's a lot going on here. First, it kind of harkens back to Christmas, right? The reason that I came, the whole reason Christmas exists is because I came to do the will of the Father, which just tells you what? That you have a God in heaven who loves you, right? We think of him as the creator. Okay, so let me start there. He knitted you together in your mother's womb. He made you on purpose for a purpose. He created you to love you. You are in every way his child. He loves you as as a child, and much more than we can even contemplate as a parent toward our own, and we love our kids a ton, at least until they get to high school, right? So the reality is God loves us way more than that. And this God looked down, and he saw, he saw that Satan had so complicated everybody that he had removed this understanding of who he was, their trust in who he is, that everybody had turned away from him, that every inclination of man's heart was evil all the time. And he had already promised not to wipe out the whole world and start over like he did with the flood. He'd already started over with Abraham one time. It was time to send in the big guns. It was time to send in the Messiah who was going to make this all right for all of eternity. And so he sent his only son knowing, knowing in advance what his son was going to have to go through. The suffering, the ridicule, the pain, all the emotions, all the temptation of of mankind. He knew that he was sending his son into the worst possible fate so that we could be forgiven. Do you get that? He loved you so much that he gave his only son so that we might experience life so that we might be reconciled to him. It starts with the Father showing that love, and Jesus came to do the will of that Father who loves us in that way, and Jesus, there's a Trinity thing, it's all, he's all one, right? But the reality is, he loves us in that same vein. And never once, through all the narrative, does he turn from that path of doing his Father's will. Never once does he turn from that path of going to the cross so he can reconcile that relationship between us and God. He knows it's the only way. Satan tried to tempt him with every other possibility, right? Here, we'll give you, I'll let you rule the whole world if you just bow down and worship to me. I'll let you do anything you want. Just don't do the one thing that you came to do. But Jesus loves us in that same vein, and he died on the cross knowing that it was the only way, knowing that even as he was hanging there, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Just look around our culture today. 
So many people don't know what they're doing. They're missing out on the grace of God. They're missing out on the forgiveness of Christ. They're missing the whole reason for this Christmas season. They're just missing it. And then he goes on and he says some, I'll just call it some meaty stuff. He says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but uh, my own will, but uh, the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then he goes on and says a second thing, equally true. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So as you go through Scripture, there's two just, I'll just call them ultimate truths. And they're both true even though they seem a little at odds when you first think about them. But I'm going to try to explain it. It's, it's the whole idea of election. So one of the things that God does in this is he says this. From the very beginning of time, there's been a group of people that I have committed to save. We're going to call them the elect. From the very beginning of time, and I'm going to give them to my son, and the remarkable thing about this is Jesus is going to lose none of them. He gives them power to save these people, right? No matter what Satan throws at them, no matter what happens in their life, ultimately these people that are the elect from the beginning of time, God saves. Whether he foreknows it or he causes it, and you get a sense that it's both, right? That he causes the, the salvation of this elect so that they're with him for eternity. That is 100% true. But the second thing he says is also 100% true that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So God's going to save, but the onus is also on us to believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, to embrace him as our Lord and Savior and be saved. That's equally 100% true. And nobody who doesn't do that is not saved. So this is kind of the way it works. God knows who the elect are from the beginning of time. We don't, right? And so we, as we look around, know that those that are saved are the ones that confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, okay? Now here's the comfort, because election is always a, a doctrine of comfort. You can know that you're the elect today. And the cool part is you always live in today. Every day of your life is that you're living, you're living in today. And you know that if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you are 100% guaranteed to be with him forever in heaven. And that on that day that you believe that you are part of the elect. And that God's promise to his elect is that they never be lost. So here's the deal. Never give that away. I don't know why you would, but never give it away. And you always live in today, so that's the comfort. If you have it going into today, the only way you can lose it, and here's the other thing, Satan can't take it away from you. He doesn't have the power. There's no human being that can take it away from you. They don't have the power. Nothing in all creation can take away your relationship with God. Nothing. Only you can give it away, and so don't do it, ever. And if you don't ever give it away, then every day of your life you can know the comfort of being in God's arms. You can know the comfort of being saved by this amazing Savior, this amazing God who sent Jesus into this world. Every day of your life you can experience the comfort of being God's kid. Just never give it away. So somebody might ask, why did we go and... Oh, James, you forgot to turn this on. Um, somebody, anyway, um, somebody might go and say, well, why do we share our faith then? Because we don't know who the elect are. And we know that God wants to gather all of his elect into his home, right? Into eternity with him forever. And so we go and we share with as many people as possible so that they might hear the gospel and be saved. And there's another reason you say you keep on sharing your faith too. 
It's because you love people, right? There's two people in my life that I want in heaven more than anything right now that I'm a little nervous about. One is my sister, right? And one is, and one is my buddy Mike. And I pray for them all the time. And the cool part about me is, in my relationship with them, is I've talked about God at nauseum with them for years, right? So it's kind of built into our relationships. And they let me, and they still love me, and it's all good, right? But, but they're, they're just struggling with it still. But because I love them the way I do, for the rest of my days, I'm going to keep on sharing about Jesus. I don't know if they're just being the stubborn elect or what, but I'm going to keep on sharing about Jesus with them because I want more than anything to be with them in heaven. In fact, my buddy Mike once said, are you going to get like a prize or something like that if I go to heaven? I'm like, I said, yeah, you know what it is? He goes, what? I'll get to hang out with you for eternity. That's my prize. That's why I keep talking to you. If I didn't like you, I'd probably still do it, but I, I would, you know, would be less invested. I don't know, but, but I want to spend my eternity with you. And so God's call to us is to keep on sharing Jesus. We know we live in a culture right now that's walking away from him in mass, and that's not okay. It's changing our culture as we know it. It's making things a little more wonky, a little less uh, filled with integrity and goodness and all those different things. The only way you change that kind of culture is by infusing the God of creation back into it, and so the only way that happens is you start sharing Jesus with more people, sharing so that they hear, not so that you win the argument. The only way your friends and your family and the people that you love and you care about end up in heaven is because you share with them. And here's the cool part. God does the work, right? He's the one that brings all of his elect into, the home, into, into heaven, right? So he's going to work on them and in them and work on them until it's time. And I don't know when time is. My, my, grandma, or my aunt took 30 years for her to come back to the faith, right? My grandma paid for 30 years. That elect piece of, uh, you know, my aunt there, she, she just stayed stubborn for 30 years and then she came back. So you keep on sharing because you want them in heaven. And so Jesus says here, hey, look, this God who loves you so much, who sent me down for this purpose, he's given me some people. And I'm not going to lose any of them. And that's his promise to you as well. I'm not going to lose any of them. So stay close to me, he says. There's actually in the Greek, it says continually believes in him. So every day, you hold on to Jesus every day. You confess to him and you're forgiven by him and you're strengthened by him and you're given hope in him and all over the place. He keeps going. Okay, so he shares that and the Jews begin to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So they get caught up in that piece and they're like, he's claiming to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God himself. In fact, he goes on to give an I am statement later on and that's even gonna make him, or actually when he says I am the bread of life and that even made him mad too. He's equating himself with God, saying I am again. In fact, seven times in John, he'll make an I am statement claiming to be God himself. The Pharisees who know this, know that the, the, the similarity to Yahweh and what he's saying, they don't like it at all and they're getting mad at him. You keep claiming to be the Messiah and we don't believe you're the Messiah so stop doing it because you're confusing the people. Jesus would say no, I'm giving life to the people. You're confused. But he goes on. They said, is it not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. For no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I think that's a hard truth too, especially for those people in our life that we're concerned about, right? We keep sharing we keep praying for them day after day after day. And we pray they're just being stubborn like my aunt. We do, and we don't give up until we're dead, right? Because we want them in heaven. 
But sometimes people just stay stubborn. For whatever reason, they just don't hear. They're like so many people in the scriptures that they, even though they were in the presence of Christ himself, they just can't come to believe. Again, you have to remember what Jesus came to do. It's not like he came to a good earth where everybody believed in him. He came to a world where everybody was going to hell. That's why we call him Savior. He has saved us from hell. For everybody, to anybody who believes in him, he gives them salvation, which means saving from hell and taking to heaven, which we call paradise. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, paradise. I mean, there's, there's only two places and there's not much of a decision, right? And so he continues to share those things. And then he goes on and says, Do not grumble among yourselves, for no one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Now, sometimes people get upset with this and they say, well, why doesn't he call everybody? Why doesn't he draw everybody? Why doesn't he make everybody believe? Because he gave us free choice from the very beginning, because he created us to love us. Now, I know when you're single, you think, well, yeah, God, just make her love me, right? But, but wouldn't it be more, I don't know, a little bit, for me, it was better when Beth actually loved me for me, right? And she married me not because she was forced by her parents or my parents or by God, but just that she loved me for me. I knew then it was authentic. That, and God desires the same thing. He loves us so much and he just wants us to love him back. And the people that ended up in heaven are what? The people that said, you are my Lord and you are my Savior. They confess their love to God again and again and again throughout their lives. Not that we're perfect, we're a big old mess, right? But, but we confess that we, in our imperfection, know that we are placing our trust in one who is perfect and one that can heal, and one that can save, and one that can, you know, on and on and on. Do not, okay, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. But truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am, he says, the bread of life. Whoever believes in me, he's saying, as the Messiah, as the one that came to save, that's who he's claiming to be all the way through this narrative. Everyone who believes in me gets eternity with me, with the Father, forever and ever and ever. It's awesome. All you have to do is believe. I think, I love the simplicity of it. I mean, God's not making this hard. He's doing all the heavy lifting. He's the one dying on the cross. He's the one suffering the punishment that we deserve to suffer. He's done everything, and he just says, hey, hey, Believe in me. It's almost counterintuitive that we are so prideful that that's a hard thing. That we are so stubborn where that's a hard thing. That we love our passions and that we love our sin and that we love the world so much where that's a hard thing. But Jesus just says over and over, it's never too late. Just come to me. Come to me and find salvation. Come to me and find rest for your souls. Remember the thief on the cross? The guy, after probably ridiculing along, him along with the other guy, finally stops and corrects the other, the other prisoner, and then he sa- or the other guy on the cross, and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He's right up on the cross, dying with Jesus, and he finally comes to his senses, and he confesses his faith in Jesus, and he says, today you will see me in paradise. So keep on praying for these people in your lives. Keep on sharing with them about God. Keep on inviting them to church and never let go of Jesus. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone who has seen the Father except me. Uh, verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so they're starting, I, I don't know if they don't get it, it's a metaphor, it, you almost, it would almost be inexplicable that they didn't get that it was a metaphor, but maybe they just couldn't make the connection, so they just keep coming back to, to the fact that he keeps talking about his body. But knowing what we know now, it was his flesh that he gave up for the life of the whole world that now offers forgiveness to anyone that would believe in him. Jesus, even in the metaphor, speaks truth to the fact of what is to come. He prophesies to his death. He does all these things saying, this is what's going to happen. He goes on and says, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, now he's talking about drinking blood. Hey, you guys just went through Leviticus with me. Is that okay? No, no, you're not supposed to drink blood, right? So they're still getting caught up in that. He says, unless you do those things, you have no life in you. For whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's almost like Jesus says, okay, you're not getting the metaphor. I'm going way into this metaphor so that you get it. But they still struggled, and so they're still frustrated. Oh, now he wants us to drink blood. We're not supposed to drink blood. I know that's wrong, right? And we're not supposed to drink or eat flesh with the blood in it, so I know that's wrong. So what he's asking us to do is just horrible. He must not be the Messiah. You think that sounds dumb, but that's really their narrative so far. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because the Father because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. In other words, believe in me, he says. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And he's speaking of all the people that were following him at this time, all the people that had been walking with him. And they just had a hard time with the bread of life narrative. They didn't get the metaphor tie-ins. They didn't understand the prophetic parts of it. This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? As I read that, I wondered about our society today. And are there things that, I guarantee you, as you read through the scriptures, especially if you're new to the scriptures, there'll come a point where you read something, and you're like, oh, that's a hard truth. Election can be a hard truth, to be honest. And you look at that hard truth and you're like, is this a deal breaker? I mean, you know, what are we, do I buy into this? Do I hold on to this? I know God speaks through his word. Do I take all of his word or am I allowed to pick and choose a little bit? I mean, how does that work? Jesus says, it's, well, the beginning of John, what does he say? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He's saying all of it you take in. But in our culture today, there's a lot of things where people read it and they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And we have a culture today, even a Christian culture, that seems to pick and choose stuff that they like in Scripture and they don't like in Scripture to their own harm. But Jesus, knowing in himself the disciples were grumbling about this, said, he says, well, do you take offense at this? In other words, is this going to be a deal breaker in our relationship? Now think about some of the contemporary issues that are going around. 
And if God were to say, this is my word, follow me, is that a deal breaker? It probably is for some people, isn't it? This is what I've said. I am the God of creation. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I do not change like sifting sands. God is constant. The things that were true 4,000 years ago, 6,000 years ago are still true today. He does it because he knows how we're wired. He knows how we're made because he created us. He knows what's good for us. He knows what's not good for us. There's things that he calls us to follow and to do because he cares about us, because he loves us. So speaking in context of contemporary culture, is this going to be a deal breaker? Then he says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Would that make a difference? If you were to see me go up to heaven, and again, is that fulfilled? Yeah, with the 500 who saw him go up on his last day, right? After he rose from the dead and he went back up into heaven, everybody saw, the people there saw it. What if you saw me do that? Would that make a difference in this narrative? Right? Again, think about contemporary culture. Think about some of the stuff that you've struggled with Scripture over the years. If God says, I want you to follow me, this is what it says. Is that a deal breaker? Is that something that's going to come in between us? What if I rose again and you saw it? Would that even impact your heart? Or are we still so set on this that it's something that we've separated ourselves from you on? Does that make sense? They're talking about bread here, but I think you can contemporize it in those ways. Then he goes on and he says, then um, in verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. I mean, see, I'm going to take a different uh, subject matter. All right, so there's a lot of people that struggle with tithing, right? If you know, and we just went through Exodus and Leviticus, so you know it's one of the things that God commands. It's putting him first in the area of giving in Deuteronomy 14, which we haven't got to yet, but it says the purpose of tithing is to learn to revere the Lord our God all the days of our life. In other words, to learn to put him first in our life. It's, it's one of the ways that we worship him, in other words. Okay, now, we live in a materialistic world. We live in a very uh, money-centric world, and so there's a lot of people that struggle with this idea of tithing. And so I'll just tell you, the people I know that have tithed, they don't give because it makes mathematical sense. They give because they trust Jesus or they trust God's promise, right? They trust that he's got them in the midst of all this stuff. They don't give to supply the air conditioning at church. They don't give to supply the pastor's salary. They say, God, I want you first in this area of my life and I'm gonna trust that as I do this, you got me. And then if your scriptures are true and I'm gonna trust them too, that you're gonna bless me as a result. Think of that in context of what he says here. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. So if you got the bills coming and you got the house payment due and all this kind of stuff, the flesh is not helping you follow Jesus, is it? The only way you can follow Jesus and tithe in that scenario is that you trust God's promises more. It's the spirit that is moving you. It is God's promise that is giving you the strength to move forward. It is the spirit and not the flesh that you are relying on. And he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. They are my promises. They're the good stuff their eternity, their forgiveness, their hope, their strength. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, in context of that subject matter, can you see how easy it is for us to fall short? Not you guys. You guys are awesome. You guys probably do that awesome. But, but the reality is, 
whatever it is, there's areas in our life where we struggle to give over to God, and in those areas of our life, we're falling short, and we're gearing ourselves more on the flesh, relying more on our own intuition, more on our own strength, more on our own wisdom than we are on God's promises. And in those areas, God calls us to more and more to trust him with more in our life. Sometimes we read or hear things like Christmas, peace, joy, hope, and sometimes we just think we're, they're fancy words or things that maybe we aspire to but never actually experience. But you know how you experience all of them? By trusting in him. If you, the, for me, uh, the words, I've gotcha, Mike, right, are incredibly meaningful to me. It's what I, I hear God saying when I'm taking communion, right? It's everything's going on, the world's coming at you, things are hard, whatever. But in those moments, I just hear God saying, I gotcha, Mike, it's going to be okay. I love you, I got you, you're mine. And in those moments, I've experienced just peace. Peace in the midst of the storm, peace in the midst of the crisis, peace in the midst of the worry. God's got me. I, I started doing this thing too. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm a control enthusiast. I think I've shared that before, right? And so I'll wake up in the middle of the night sometimes trying to control the uncontrollable, and, and that doesn't bode well for me usually. And so as soon as I realize what I'm doing and not going to sleep and not, you know, being healthy, I started praying and say, God, okay, I got to give this to you now, right? Because clearly I'm not making any headway with it. I, I just need to give it to you, and I need you to do it. I need you to figure it out. And when you figure it out, come bring it back to me, and then I'll take credit for it. You know, I'm just kidding. But the real I need you to do this. And I've gotten to the place where I can actually give it to him, experience that peace, and go back to bed. It's an extraordinary thing, but that peace, that hope, which is a trust in the things to come, right? That joy, which is knowing that God's got you, knowing that he's working all things for your good, even in the midst of the, the manure pile that you're in, right? You can experience that joy, that hope, that peace in tangible terms, but it all comes from trusting him. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who was going to betray him. So John's writing things that the other gospel writers didn't get to early on, and he's saying, hey, I, he knew about Judas Iscariot, the one who would betray him right from the beginning. You get the sense that he called him as a disciple, knowing from the beginning that it was Judas who would one day betray him. And you get the sense through all the gospels that he poured into Judas as much or more than all the disciples, right? trying to get the message through, trying to share with him who he was, trying to get him to hope in him, to trust in him, to give his life to him. But the cares of the world seem to outdo that at the end. But this is why I told you that no one can come to the Father unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Again, think contemporary culture, think anything that you're struggling with God with that's in his word. There comes a point where you've got to say, I'm either all in or I'm not in at all, right? And all of us, we struggle with that, and I'm not saying you have to make it like that, but just the reality is that God is addressing different sins in your life. He's bringing attention to different things, and what God calls us to do is to repent, to give that to him, and to change. For some people, it's addiction, and that's a hard one to come, come over. I, I know I was addicted to Madden football for a lot of years, right? So the reality, but it's, I'm just, I say that lightly. There's some major addictions, but the reality is those are tough ones to give to God. AA, when it was blowing and going and doing its thing, had a higher power that was God himself the God of scriptures, 80% success rate. When they took him out of it, they got a 15% success rate today. That's the difference God makes. 
God can help you overcome anything, give you the strength to overcome anything, do anything. You'd be blown away by the power he can give you in your life, but it starts with saying, God, I'm all in. I give my life to you. Now help me. Help me figure this out. Help me overcome this deal. Help me shred Madden football and not buy it again, right? I mean, do all those different things. There's somebody that got relational difficulties and it so overwhelms you that it just scours and skews all of your perspective. And you can't seem to force the other person to buy in differently. And you can't seem to force the person to love you again or whatever the deal is, divorce or relationships, you have it. But you go to God to find peace and strength. If you're married, strength to continue to pour into that relationship, to continue to love them even when you're not getting that return. Continue to do right things, hoping some way that God uses that to show them Jesus again and rekindle that love that they have for you. God can restore things that you'd never believe. I've seen him restore relationships that were so broken it would blow your mind. I've watched God heal people. I've watched God uh, do, (laughs) well, and I love it when he just answers the, the not silly prayers, but He gives jobs to people. He does all sorts of things in answering prayers. He is the God of the possible, which are all secondary to the fact that he forgives you, right? God is amazing in his love, and he does all these things. But again, I want to bring you back as we close today to the thing that Jesus came to do, the thing that he is claiming, believe in me for your forgiveness, for that reconciliation with the Father so that you can be with me forever. And that's my prayer for you guys tonight. And we'll pick up next week in verse 60. Let me pray. God, we love you so much, and we thank you for tonight. And Father, we're just, I, I'm getting geeked out about um, Christmas, and I just pray that for everybody here that you give them a blessed Christmas and that you, you give family harmony and that even with those members of the family that we're struggling with, that you just allow it to be a time of peace and, and joy and, and, and reconciliation if possible. And I, I pray also, Lord, that you help us with our finances in January and that you were somewhat helping us be prudent as we went through this Christmas season and just that you would help that all work out. And, and as we worry about this or that or the other thing, Lord, just give us a sense of peace reminding ourselves that you love us that you got us, and that we're yours. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus tonight. We pray that in his name and all God's people said, amen. Guys, go with this blessing tonight. May our Lord bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and be gracious always unto you. And may he look upon you now with his favor and grant you forever his peace. Amen? Amen. I invite you to rise.